The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. There's something disturbing about the McDonald case, something that has made me return to it again and again over the years. It wasn't the brutality of the murders. I've interviewed my share of mass murderers, including Ed Dean and Edmund Kemper. I was afraid of something even more chilling, that McDonald was innocent. He had been made to witness the savage deaths of his family and then was wrongfully convicted for their murders. I wondered if people needed him to be guilty because the alternative was too horrible to contemplate. And that's from Errol Morris, the author of our book today, A Wilderness of Error. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club. This is episode 21. Murder Bookies. I'm Jill. And I'm Tara. For those of you who are just tuning in, we are a real-life true crime book club turned podcast. While we do the heavy lifting, we encourage you to read along with us. We like to summarize each book we pull off our murder shelf, follow along the author's footsteps, and of course, give our thoughts and opinions. You can anticipate three episodes on each book, the first two going through the book, and our third, which we dub second cast, where we examine topics that we didn't get to cover in the first couple of episodes. We hope you're staying safe and healthy, and thank you for tuning in. We don't have much housekeeping today, but if you listen to our last episode, you'll know that we covered a bit on Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker. Make sure you catch the Netflix series, The Night Stalker. I had no idea how truly evil that man was. It is worse than you expect even for the hardened true crime aficionados. I'll let you know my thoughts when I watch it. Get into it soon. <laughs> I, I know from you, it's a doozy. <gasps> Just like today's book is a doozy. We're covering Jeffrey McDonald and the murders of his wife, children, and unfortunately she was pregnant at the time, so under a child. And if you've read this book, you literally know everything about this case now. This is literally the Encyclopedia Britannica of the Jeffrey McDonald case. And if anything, this is truly the book where we really, really do that heavy lifting for you. And I'll admit, I I knew nothing when we first brought this up in book club. I actually had recently watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, I'm a big Leonardo DiCaprio fan. So I finally got a chance to watch it. And when you brought up this, I was like, yes, please. Even though Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, completely different than what I thought it was going to be. We're not here to talk about movies. <laughs> but I knew more than the average fan about the Manson murders, which is one of those things that we talk about. It's an element that we can connect to. So I was definitely keen to start reading this book. And one of the things that Morris makes apparent, and which Jill can actually attest to, is everyone thought they knew literally everything about this case because they had read a fatal vision by Joe McGinnis, which over 5 million copies were sold. This book seems to be like an, a true betrayal. 
McGinnis was a man, an author, a journalist. He'd been hired by the McDonald team to tell Jeff's story. And Jeffrey McDonald believed that McGinnis was actually on his side and would tell his story of truth. But who wants to read about an innocent person? Everyone watched this miniseries that was made on the book. There was also a 60 minutes episode that aired on September 18, 1983. Yes, it's been on that long. It was seen by roughly 30 million people. And everyone thought that Jeffrey McDonald was guilty and that he was a killer. And if you have no idea what we're talking about, well, we're going to get into it. And more, more at the end of the episode and probably in a second. We've got, we've got a long way to go. Oh, Terry, you are not kidding. I did watch the miniseries with Gary Cole as McDonald way back in 1984. And listen, it was a complete slam dunk. And I even rewatched Fatal Vision again for our series. Now, later I did read the Joe McGinnis book, Fatal Vision, which, you know, filled in all the, the cracks and the gaps. And this guy is guilty as hell. What a monster. I mean, case closed. So what on earth was Errol Morris babbling about? Miscarriage of justice in the McDonald case? Give me a freaking break. All right. But then I read Wilderness of Error and backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. Like what the hell just happened? It really made me revisit my confidence in the verdict that I have held for decades. That is a powerful book, one that can make you really rethink. Errol Morris is no stranger to miscarriages of justice, and that is what this book is rife with. Suppressed evidence, court misconduct, bubbling investigators, forensic mix-ups, you name it. Morris spent about four years working on another case, ultimately ending in the creation of the 1988 release of The Thin Blue Line. This documentary circles around Randall Dale Adams, who was tried and convicted for the murder of a Texas police officer, Robert Wood, and focused on inconsistencies, incongruities, loose ends throughout the case. Ultimately, Morris helps free Adams from prison after deriving a confession from the actual killer, the original suspect, Davis Harris. Hence, you can see why the McDonald case was so intriguing. Oh, absolutely. Considering that he just freed a man, he, he might have some of that success later on. Can lightning strike twice, do you think? I don't know. We'll find out. Exactly. So, Morris suggests, and this is a quote from the book, what happens when the narrative of a real-life crime overwhelms the evidence? When evidence is rejected, suppressed, misinterpreted, or is just left uncollected at the crime scene, simply because it doesn't fit the narrative. But before we get too far into the story, Jill, we're in book club. What, what are we eating? I'm hungry. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. Since we are down south, this is occurring in Fayetteville, North Carolina, I thought we'd get into something incredibly popular in the region a southern pimento cheese spread. I have to admit, it's a personal favorite of mine. I do have some family down in North Carolina, so this has become a regular part of my snacking. Yeah, sadly, not just during book club or holidays. I like this, okay? Now, I always keep my eye on ease of preparation, and this is one bowl. You dump the ingredients in, you beat it, and you are ready to serve it. Crackers... Okay. 
my preferred method, veggies, tea sandwiches. It's ready for whatever you choose. And I want to thank you, allrecipe.com's Queen Rene, for this particular recipe because it is really, really good. Tara, we have one robust, flavorful book club. I love our food. so delicious. Can't wait to go back for a buffet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have the recipe on our blog. Yep, yep. So I'll eat anything cheese, and I love a good cheese spread. Easy crackers, bread, whatever. I decided to go with a, a bit of a weird wine pairing here today, but I will say it is absolutely perfect. Mento cheese spread. Mentos are peppers, right? <laughs> so the wine to pair is Cabernet Franc. Some of you are probably like, what the hell is this? But this is actually the perfect pairing of peppers, cheese, and actually the herbs used in this recipe. A cab franc is one of the pairings in the union of Cabernet Sauvignon, the other Sauvignon Blanc. So you have a red grape and a white grape that produce Cabernet Sauvignon, which is the premier grape. But we're talking about cab, right? The, the parent here. So this is a red wine. It's medium-bodied and will mesh with a ton of foods due to the high acidity and light tannins that astringency in wine that we talked about quite a bit. And one thing I learned from Wine Folly, which you know is, is a wine site that has really, really good wine education, is that if you're using fresh herbs, just pair it with Cabernet Franc. You're not going to be disappointed. And so I'm from upstate New York, if you guys don't know, Rochester area, Syracuse, not a far cry from Pacho, New York, which is where McDonald's was born. I'm more versed in Finger Lakes wines. Cab Franc is one that I'm actually decently versed in than anywhere else, especially from a New York standpoint. A nice one I was able to go back to is the 2016 Dr. Constantine Frank Cabernet Franc. And it's a beautiful little vineyard at a nice spot on Chica Lake, which is a Finger Lake. Mm -hmm. um, the wine was aged for 18 months in French oak and presents with nice red fruit flavors, bell pepper, and a hint of chili pepper. The pepper characteristic is really interesting. It's usually good for a white, but maybe not in a red. You're either going to love it or you're going to hate it, and I really think you're going to like it with this cheese bread. We're getting into science. <laughs> the flavor is caused by some aroma compounds called methoxypyrazines, and these compounds occur naturally in cab vines as a natural defense system against pests, and therefore will ultimately culminate in that grape. So if you do put your hands on some cab franc, just to can it for about 30 minutes or get an aerator, put it in the bottle, pour it out, just get a little air to it, and it will even those flavors out of it. And depending on where you are, this particular bottle will cost you about 12 bucks. If you get it from a premier region, it may cost you a bit more, but up to you where you want to get it from. So let's dive in. Well, let's go then. All right, so right away, Morris sets his vision for the book. I'm going to quote now. Let me describe the movie that I imagined. I wanted to cast Gary Cole, the actor that played McDonald in the TV miniseries, and use him for my own reenactments of the case. I would juxtapose the reenactments with scenes from the original TV movie, and it would be a version of Rashomon, a film by Akira Kurosawa, with competing narratives and different points of view. Here it would be by the same actor. Such a movie, I thought, would open the case back up and show how critical evidence was ignored or suppressed, how evidence that was introduced does not confirm McDonald's guilt. It could help people think and decide for themselves. I stopped. The studio executive across the table clearly wanted to say no. She paused and said, we can't make that. 
I asked why. Because he's guilty, she said. That man killed his family. And I said, but he might be innocent. And she said, no, he killed his family. End quote. So where do you go from there? Who is or who was Jeffrey McDonald? Well, he's still alive and it's been 40 plus years. He's an Ivy Leaker, Princeton for three years, and then off to medical school at Northwestern. Jeff found himself a captain in the Green Berets down in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Once his service in the military was over, he planned to take up residency in orthopedics at Yale. He was young, handsome, some would say a playboy. McDonald was married to his childhood sweetheart, Colette Stevenson, who's 26 at this point. And they have two beautiful little girls, Kimberly, age five, and Kristen, two, with a baby on the way. Anyone who knew the McDonald's would say the two little girls were smitten with their daddy. The dream was to own a farm in Connecticut. That dream ended on the morning of February 17, 1970, when Colette and the girls were found murdered in their home at 544 Castle Drive in Fayetteville, North Carolina, a duplex. We're going to set the scene as Morris did. Now pay close attention. Most of this is going to come up a multitude of times across multiple hearings and trials in the coming decades, and this will be graphic. Colette was four months pregnant with their first son. She was found beaten and stabbed, face down on the floor of the master bedroom. Both of her arms were broken, likely defensive injuries. Her skull was fractured, and she had been stabbed at least 24 times with an ice pick, in addition to other stab wounds that seemed to be from another sharp object, most likely a knife. Needless to say, her death was brutal, and so were the deaths of her two girls. Both were found dead in their beds. Kimberly had been stabbed the right side of her head crushed by a club. Kristen, the youngest, was also stabbed, but no broken bones. Blood was everywhere. What a scene. It's horrifying. And we're just left to wonder what had actually happened. McDonald said that he was in and out of consciousness, and this is what he explained to MP Ken Micah, military policeman for MP that he had been asleep on the couch in the living room when he heard his friends. And he saw four people at the foot of the sofa. One blonde woman with a floppy hat and brown boots. Two white guys and one black male. In the chaos of the opening scene that Morris presents to us, Micah told a superior officer that he had seen a woman matching the description that McDonald gave on the street corner, not too far away, one who was wearing a floppy hat. Yet no one tried to pick her up. McDonald was ultimately rushed to the hospital, where he was treated for bruises, abrasions, small puncture wounds, two stab wounds, one in his stomach and also to the right side of his chest, and also a collapsed one. So, a lot of carnage at 544, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Specialist 7th Class William Ivory with the Criminal Investigation Division of the Army, which we'll call CID in the future, he took detailed notes of the crime scene, and here's what he recorded. Colette was on the floor in the master bedroom on her back next to a green armchair. She was wearing pink pajamas. There's a bath mat across her stomach. On her chest appeared to be some blue cloth, which was later identified as part of a blue pajama top. Between the armchair and the dresser, he observed a small wooden-handled knife. Now back to the living room. One side of the living room appeared to be undisturbed. The other half was a different story. 
coffee table in front of a brown divan was tipped on its edge, and multiple magazines had fallen to the floor. A plant with the roots and dirt lay on the floor just to the side of that table, with the white plant pot sitting upright. We have a diagram on our blog along with our sourcing for the series. Check there for some pictures of the day Now, weapons were discovered outside the back door of the house about a half hour later when Robert Shaw and another CID investigator arrived. A wooden club, a paring knife with a brown handle, and an ice pick with a tan wood handle. The objects were sketched where they were as the photographer had, quote, run out of film, bulbs, or had some other tech problems, end quote. Why? What? Okay. (laughs) I understand this is the 70s, but please. (laughs) Anyway, and the weapons were taken into evidence. Both Shaw and Ivory were relatively young and inexperienced in homicide, but both came to the conclusion that there was something wrong with the scene in the living room. While there were signs of a struggle, there wasn't enough destruction to suggest that five people were present, four assailants and one adult victim. Now, we might be biased, but we also have read enough books to understand crime scene investigation. How the hell do you know that something looks, quote, wrong, unquote, because you don't see enough signs of a struggle? Sounds like a kind of a crowd. I'm not sure how much struggling goes on when you've got a group, like a bunch of people. I don't know. I don't know either. One thing absolutely did stand out. On the headboard of the master bedroom, on the headboard, the word pig was written in blood. Now, for those of you who know the significance of this, you get it immediately. If not, Morris is going to fill you in as soon as you read on into the next chapter. Backstory, roughly six months earlier, prior to this, on August 9, 1969, Sharon Tate, the wife of Roman Polanski, who I brought up once upon a time in Hollywood earlier. She was also eight and a half months pregnant, and along with some of her friends, were shot and stabbed to death at Polanski's home while he was away in Europe. The next day, Leno and Rosemary LaBianca were found murdered in the same fashion. At the Polanski home on Cielo Drive, the word pig was written on the wall in Sharon's blood. And at the LaBianca home, death to pigs and helter skelter were written on the walls of blood. If this doesn't ring any bells, we're going to tell you right now, it's Charles Manson and his family who were responsible for this. And now, we could go on and on about Manson. Shit, there's a number of books you should do a series on, right? But the idea that Helter Skelter and a group of, quote, drug-crazed hippies, end quote, had come to Fayetteville made the front page of the Fayetteville Observer. And now, the newspaper featured some additional details lending to the idea that some hippies might be responsible. We knew that McDonald advised that he woke up on the couch before people standing near his feet. The article said that he told military authorities that three men and a woman had burst in through the back door of the house, chanting, LSD is great! LSD is great! And a few days later, the New York Times had picked up on some of these quotes and reported that McDonald had said, isn't that violent? In a reference to a Manson Murders article in a magazine, when speaking to friend Lieutenant Ronald Harrison. Now, Harrison had made various comments to Army investigators that were released to the press and made it seem like McDonald had been interested in Satanism and occult practices simply because he had a copy of the March 1970 issue of Esquire. Are we to believe? 
that this article, that this magazine was the trigger to these crimes that led McDonald to kill his wife and children, that he would recreate a Manson-like murder scene out on the East Coast, or considering that the Manson family murders were being called the crime of the century, would it be out of line to think that the group of drug-crazed hippies, as they were so lovingly called, may have been influenced to do the same? However, in a signed statement from Harrison dated July 13, 1970, months after the murders, the article in question was a topic of discussion literally for 10 minutes in a two-and-a-half to three-hour visit with the McDonald family, which was literally an offhanded comment made by Jeffrey McDonald, who told Harrison, go ahead and read it. It's wild. This is context. This is what we call context. But this statement was never released to the public, and we'll come back. Oh, brother. Well, we will bring it up now, just as Errol Morris does. The question of psychopathy. Was McDonald a psychopath? Herb Clakely was a Georgia psychiatrist and Rhodes Scholar, author of The Three Faces of Eve and The Mask of Sanity. These books became the foundation of thought surrounding the idea of psychopathy and multiple personality disorders, known as DID today, Dissociative Identity Disorder. Why do we bring him up? Well, this is a central theme to the McDonald case, between actual disease and faking disease. Genuine normalcy versus faking it. We've talked about the mask before, the one that slips. Was McDonald wearing it? Was there a monster lurking beneath? Remember, remember who we defined as psychopath. Ted Bundy, Ed Kemper, Dennis Rader, Richard Ramirez, the list goes on. And uh, some of them are able to walk among us because they come across as likable, genial, charming, nice. But this is camouflage to the predatory nature within, the lore that pulls you in to the point where you cannot escape. And when the mask slips, you see what lies beneath, and it's, it's too late. All right, keeping this brief, Dr. Robert Hare is a criminal psychologist, and he created a very, very useful checklist for determining the depth of psychopathy that I find really useful in characterizing the behavior for us. And it uses both an interpersonal and a social domain for organizing. The interpersonal describes glibness, superficial charm, conning and manipulation, a grandiose sense of self-worth, pathological lying, lack of empathy and remorse, callousness, a refusal to accept responsibility that is found in the psychopath. Now, the social domain delves into impulsivity, irresponsibleness, restlessness, this parasitic aspect of their lives, poor behavior controls, lack of goal setting, lack of achieving. So we all might have some of these to a certain extent, but we don't have all of these simultaneously. (laughs) You know, it's most of... Right. Yeah. Well, ideally we don't. And if you know someone who does, well, yeah, now you know. Most alarming with the psychopath is the lack of emotion that they experience. They mimic, but they don't actually feel like we do. They see how we look when we're feeling X, so they look like that too. And succinctly, that is your basic psychopath with all the bells and whistles. As far as McDonald goes, he's very goal-oriented, successful. He's achieved a lot. 
So I don't see that parasitic or irresponsibleness per se. Perhaps a restlessness giving rise to an aggressiveness in his career, his workout schedule. He does seem controlling and certainly not a lack of control in his life. Was he emotionally distant, selfish, callous even? Yeah, probably he could be that. I think he was the son in this family and the center of their world, and probably the dominant one whose needs came first. I could definitely see that. Yeah. Now, Jill, two words. Coffee table. Oh, my God. If you've read this book, you know you're already in it. McDonald's was first brought in for questioning on April 6, 1978. Read his rights. declined to have his lawyer present. The interview was conducted by CID Chief Investigator Franz Bredner, Agent William Ivory, and Agent Robert Shaw. Both the latter had been at the scene of crime. And this is what McDonald said, and would be the story he maintained. Two-year-old Kristen was asleep with Colette, and Kristen had went to bed. McDonald picked her up and brought Kristen to her own bed, but he couldn't remember if he had changed her or not. However, he had decided to sleep on the couch and not wake Colette had been sleeping soundly, and Jeff woke up on the couch with a girl standing at his feet holding a candle. His first thought was, why the heck is she holding a candle? And then it just went to shit from there. Before the first blow to his body, he remembered someone saying, kill the pigs, ass is groovy. McDonald recalls being on the couch, then being at the end of the couch near the hallway, and he saw the top of some boots, but it wasn't what they had said in the papers. They weren't white, they were brown. So, well, we'll see this come up a little bit here and there. This has literally been misreported for 50 years. McDonald said he saw brown boots. Brown. Not white. Brown. Yeah. However, he was alive, but the rest of them were dead. And the investigators were quick to note that something seemed funny to them about the living room. Again, how do we know this? But they said it was too tidy, too neat for the struggle that McDonald was describing. And McDonald was the murderer, and he had somehow staged the crime scene to make it look like he had been attacked. And in comes the coffee table, the flower pot, and the stack of magazines. Now, Chief Investigator Fredner said that a number of people had tipped the coffee table over to try to recreate the scene. It was top-heavy. It went all the way over onto its backside with it. So literally flipped, legs up in the air, and even pushed this chair out of the way. And it should have been upside down when it stopped, not leaning. At the scene, the magazines were under the edge of the table. However, according to Gretner's tests, they would have landed on the floor away from the table. So the plant and pot always go straight out. Of course, McDonald's like, why, why would I stage the scene? Like, why would I do this? And they all wondered why the pot would be standing up. And McDonald says, apparently, don't know much about my family and myself. I'll tell you that. I'm bright, aggressive, I work hard, and I had a terrific family, and I love my wife very much. And this is the most asinine thing I've ever heard in my whole entire life. Yeah. Well, Morris determines that McDonald had to be the type of man who could do this to his family because CID had already come to that conclusion. Yes, they had come to that conclusion, so they needed to make it fit. The next day on April 7th, Jeffrey McDonald was named as the Army's prime suspect in the murder of Colette, his two young daughters, and his unborn son. When asked why CID became so convinced it was McDonald, 
Well, there's a lot of ex-soldiers, dropouts, violent crimes happen all over the place and are mostly drug-related. So everyone believed Jeff because there was a war on drugs. People were buying guns, barring their doors, just like the Sacramento area because of the Visalia Ransacker or the original Night Stalker, later to be known as the Golden State Killer. Remember, they were all buying guns and selling out the shelves empty, right? Now, Jeff was arrogant, and in his interviews, he was very dismissive and casual. So that also helped convince them that it was him. Yes. He wasn't, I guess he wasn't grieving enough or withdrawn enough or mourning enough. Enter Michael Malley, McDonald's roommate at Princeton. They weren't quite friends. They had actually parted a ways after only a few years, and he would go on to be a lawyer in the military and eventually one of McDonald's defense attorneys. He wrote to McDonald on a whim, urging him not to speak with CID, but McDonald had already done so. However, they started corresponding, and McDonald requested Malley's assistance, and as soon as he received orders from the higher-ups, he went to do just that. Similar to others searching for possible motive, many go to the possible drug use. Jeff did not use them except the occasional diet pill. Psychosis, psychopathy, even infidelity. I guess he had occasional one-night flings. But he was considered a loving husband and father who was loved in return by his family. And Jeff did not believe that Colette knew he was cheating on her. But he would never do anything at the expense of his wife and children. That's his position. All right, but one thing that always remained is the fact that the Army screwed up. They were sloppy. They were bullies. Didn't matter. McDonald is formally charged on May 1st, 1970. McDonald's lawyer, Jim Dalbat, asked Nally to join the defense team. Nally and the others believe that if Jeff was guilty, he hid it really well. Now, for the Army's Article 32 hearing, Mally's job was to find character witnesses. And having a likable defendant is kind of important, right? Right. So he found that McDonald was well-liked at home in Pachaqua by his classmates and acquaintances. Freddie and Mildred Kassab, who are Colette's mother and stepfather, said, Oh, we love Jeff. We'd do anything. And they were adamant that McDonald was innocent. Now, this is a key point. Remember that. Malley also noted the lack of physical evidence, a crime scene that was utterly destroyed by the military police, the lack of care in gathering evidence, and the biggest thing, no apparent motive. What is an Article 32 hearing? Well, it's not a court-martial. It is a preliminary investigation to decide whether or not to proceed to a court-martial. So it's comparable to a grand jury hearing, defense lawyers, prosecutors, witnesses, but no jury. So it's just an investigating officer. Colonel Warren V. Rock was that investigating officer, and he was assisted by legal advisor by the name of Hammond A. Beal. A young Captain Clifford Summers presented the case against McDonald. The hearing began on May 15, 1970. The defense team included non-Army lawyers Bernard Siegel and Denny Heisman, in addition to military lawyers Jim Dowsett and Michael Malley. And their first order of business was that they had not received critical evidence, including crime scene photographs, lab reports, and autopsy reports. 
The case was postponed until that July as it should have been, in which the team was able to review the requested documents and conduct some interviews. This will become an ongoing theme. McDonald's defense team not being privy to critical evidence to help prepare in McDonald's defense. And when the hearing resumed on July 5th, 1970, it was actually close to the public. It was Freddie Kassab, McDonald's father-in-law, Collette's stepfather, who strongly suggested to President Richard Nixon that the proceedings should be open to the public. His request was ignored. At the hearing, Specialist 4th Class Kenneth Micah was called as a witness. He was also one of the first MPs to arrive at the scene. We remember talking about him, hopefully. His testimony provided a description of the untouched crime scene. However, photographs taken later in the morning were different from what he had seen. Three photographers had to be called to the scene for various reasons. And when Bernard Siegel, McDonald's Blair, asked to describe a photo from a second set, he noted that Colette's midriff was exposed. Now, Micah recalls that her stomach was covered when he first saw her body. And this wasn't the only occasion of disagreement. A coffee table overturned, a missing wallet, an upright flower pot. Photos serve as a record of the crime scene. What happens when the photos are taken after the crime scene has already been changed? You get a wilderness of animals. Of course you do. The title of the book. Micah even described a man at the crime scene that he didn't quite recognize who was wearing jeans and an army field jacket. It was this man that moved the flower pot. So, conclusion, the crime scene was a contaminated mess. We literally have MPs giving evidence against the government theory that McDonald had staged the crime scene. It really is just a mess. And more about that damn coffee table. So, Specialist William Ivory did more than a few tests on this damn coffee table. Try 30. 30 tests. His intent was to try to get a result that showed as it appeared in the crime scene photos. No matter what use of force, the table would always fall the same, on top with its legs in the air, never on the side as it was found in the McDonald home that morning. Essentially, it had to be placed that way. Now, thankfully, Colonel Rock felt that the infinite discussion about the coffee table was a bit ridiculous. Yeah. And he yeah, and he decided to conduct the experiment himself. The last point that Rock made was when he, quote, kicked over the coffee table. It struck the side of the rocking chair and came to rest on its edge, end quote. Huh. Huh. Thirty tests, Rock comes in, one kick, boom, on the edge. All right, so Rock was able to do the same thing at the McDonald House in front of Franz Grebner and William Ivory with the same result, a result that he found twice, and he had proven the impossible. So Ken Micah now takes the stand for the second time during the hearing, this time for the defense, and he told the court that he had seen a woman that night, a blonde woman wearing a floppy hat and a dark-colored raincoat. Now, this matches the description that McDonald gave of the female intruder. Micah saw her just a few blocks away from the McDonald house, standing on the street corner in the rain, on his way to the crime scene. Now, this is unusual. Siegel pressed Micah further. Had he told anyone else what he'd seen? Well, he told his commanding officers what he'd seen, including the head of investigation, Provost Marshal Colonel Robert Hironic. But nothing was done. Why wouldn't it? 
a woman standing in the rain at, what, like 4.30 in the morning on a street corner matching the description of an assailant? Why wouldn't you go find him? Nah. Anywho. Nah. William Posey was a laundry delivery man, and he described what he had seen in the early morning hours of February 17th. He had woken up to use the bathroom when he heard a car pull into the parking lot, and the passengers were making some noise which aroused his curiosity. A woman, Helena Stokely, whom he known to have lived there, got out of the car, a woman that matched the description that Micah gave. Poppy hat, blonde wig, white boots. This was a girl that Posey knew well by appearance alone, having lived right across the way from her. And he said he very seldom saw her without that hat. And speaking with Stokely and a mutual friend a week or so later, she advised she needed an alibi for the night that Posey had described. However, a few days later, she was gone. In the wind. Poof. Toward the end of the hearing, it was revealed that specialist William Ivory had interviewed Stokely for CID, but had failed to look into her further. Now, when Ivory interviewed her, he didn't even take notes. We talked about this before. Why, why wouldn't you take notes during a criminal investigation? Unless you have something to hide, right? That's weird. When asked if Ivory had asked her to come testify at the hearing, he said that he did, but that she wouldn't come. She didn't want to become involved. And it was Colonel Rock who asked him to repeat that statement. Stokely was not at the Article 32 hearing because she did not want to become involved. The flower pot, coffee table, Helena Stokely, put that on repeat because you're going to keep hearing it. It's nice to know that you have the option of showing up or not to her hearing. It's nice to know you have the option. I'm just going to try that. God forbid I ever get involved in something like this and say I just really prefer not to get involved. Yeah, something. Do you think, do you think that would work? I'm going to be noncommittal about giving you an answer because I don't even want to give an answer and I shouldn't have to. Yeah, I don't want to go. I don't want to. I don't want to. All right, so what about Dr. Jeffrey McDonald's mental state? Dr. Robert Sadoff was the psychiatrist hired to examine Jeffrey McDonald. And after a three-hour examination prior to the hearing, Dr. Sadoff concluded that he saw zero evidence of psychopathy in Jeffrey McDonald. He could not see any reason that would account for the loss of control or premeditated murder. Sadoff was asked a million and a half times if McDonald was capable of these crimes, and his answer was always a resounding no. This was unanimous across the board from every psychiatrist who had interviewed McDonald. Finally, his actions afterward were noted to be a normal grief response. But if there was any guilt, it was because he couldn't save his family when he was supposed to be their protector. That sounds pretty normal to me, that survivor's guilt thing, right? Of course, a doctor might be aware of this, you know, aspect of surviving a trauma, but evidently no narcissism, arrogance, no lacking empathy, no illusions of grandeur, manipulation, unfeeling. So, okay for Dr. Sadler. We hear you, sir. So, to finalize the Article 32 hearing, the purpose again was to find enough evidence to be able to charge Jeffrey McDonald in a formal court martial. All Colonel Rock had to do would be to say that there was probable cause. Colonel Rock actually took it a step further. His findings were released on October 13, 1970, and he stated that all charges and specifications be dropped as what the prosecution presented were not true, 
and that Helena Stokely be investigated properly by local authorities. Hmm. And 10 days later, on October 23rd, 1970, the charges against McDonald were dismissed by the commanding officer of Fort Bragg. He was free to go. There would be no apology from the prosecution for any mistakes or assumptions that they made of Jeffrey McDonald. And for Michael Malley, his military lawyer, that was a very, very dangerous thing. You'd think that was it, right? Oh, no. No, 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 no. We've got like 400 more pages left to go in the book. (laughs) All right, circling back to Helena Stokely. While it was requested that local authorities investigate her, the FBI refused to take on the case. J. Edgar Hoover even sent a letter to Special Agent in Charge Robert M. Murphy stating, quote, Under no circumstances should we become involved in this matter since the Army handled this case poorly from its inception, end quote. So think about it. Even Hoover is talking about how awfully this case was handled, and he wants his hands in everything. That's powerful that he's like, nope, 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 not. Nope, not this one. Nope. So, December 1st, 1970, Jeff McDonald was honorably discharged from the Army. He left Fayetteville and went back to New York City. His father-in-law, Fred Kassab, sent a letter to every congressman, senator, even the vice president, advising them of how the Army had mishandled the case, the lack of fingerprint analysis, fingerprints being destroyed, no inventory taking of belongings in the house, and the ridiculous assumptions like, quote, when hippies kill someone, they let the body stay where it falls, they don't move it, end quote. Meaning that, you know, McDonald is surely guilty as Kimberly's body had been moved. Hippies don't, don't do that. I'm so glad there's been extensive study on hippie murderers and knowing that they didn't lose the body. It's good. Good research. Yeah. Holy, holy, holy. <laughs> Although McDonald was feared, obviously the case still remained unsolved. And McDonald was still a possible suspect, so don't let him off the hook here. But it was mainly because there's no one else. So a congressman by the name of Allard Lowenstein had agreed to help with the case and had arranged for McDonald to be a guest on the Cabot show. It was a part of a campaign to have the case reopened and get these horrible murders solved. And McDonald's appearance attracted a lot of attention, not for the right reasons. Dick Cavett recalled that his, quote, affect was all wrong, just totally wrong, end quote. And the impression that he gave to Cavett and his audience was that he was more concerned about the wrong committed against him by the army than he was focused on finding the killers of his family. Morris had the opportunity to review the footage of the Dick Cavett interview. It's on YouTube.com. And readily admits that there is something weird or off about his affect. And Jill, you watched it too, right? Oh, I did. Yeah, but wouldn't that be a bit strange too? Maybe if you were on a network television show for the first time discussing all of this? Hey, I was nervous the first time we were recording sitting in my own house, okay? So I can't in imagine. A <laughs> I can't imagine being on television talking about something so horrific as the murder of my entire family. On national television, he certainly did not talk about the family. He did talk about the Army botching the case. But they did botch the case. So I'm not sure how normal or abnormal that was. I mean, Dick Cavett might have more experience interviewing people 
then certainly I do. But that's that. I mean, you don't, know. Don't sell yourself short. But <laughs> anyway, not happy topics by any means that we're discussing. It didn't really matter what everyone else thought. Freddy Kassab had watched and he did not like what he saw. From there on, his relationship with his son-in-law would be forever changed. Now, I really did dwell upon this a little bit, and for comparison purposes, I watched Dick Cavett's 1971 interview with Roman Polanski, the husband of slain actress Sharon Tate, who was killed by the Charles Manson family. So Cavett asks Polanski how he's dealing with celebrities, media, people who you know thrive on horrible events like this, with everyone claiming to know secret tidbits, and Polanski admits to loathing them. He talks about himself, he talks about his feelings, advice he was given on coping with his loss. He didn't go out for eight months, he said, and it cost those backing the film that he was working on when Sharon and his unborn child were slain. It was Day of the Dolphin, several million dollars. So Roman Polanski doesn't discuss Sharon at all. Uh, He does talk about his new film, Macbeth. Now, granted, the Manson killers were caught by 1971. While, according to MacDonald, the killers of his family were still at large. But Polanski does not mention Sharon losing his family. Not at all. Does that normalize Jeffrey McDonald's Cabot interview? You decide, murder bookies. So, the Cabot show appearance regardless of how we feel he acts or doesn't is definitely going to be a major turning point. However, it was a month beforehand, on November 17th, 1970, that Fred Kassab had had a conversation with McDonald that seemed a little bit suspicious. And Kassab reported the conversation in which McDonald told him that he, quote, he had gone to the town in Fayetteville looking for the murderers and found one, that after questioning him, beating him, the fellow admitted that he had participated in the murders, so Jeff killed him, end quote. When Errol Moritz questioned Mike Malley, McDonald's lawyer, Malley stated that Kassab was in favor of the death penalty against whoever killed his daughter and grandchildren, that Kassab actually asked McDonald to go to North Carolina to seek out the killers. And from what Malley knew, again from McDonald, is that Kassab had become difficult, and this was a normal request of vigilantism. He knew that McDonald wanted to put it all behind him and may have concocted a story for Kassab that had backfired. And McDonald had lied to Freddie, and that was a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. So you decide to tell Freddie that you killed the guy who murdered his daughter. You know, I can empathize with the, the wanting to move on and put this horrible tragedy behind you. I can understand Freddie and Mildred's grief and their pursuit of the perpetrators and how draining this might get, but to make up some murder shit and think that's going to solve the problem? It tells me that McDonald was really desperate and grasping at straws here because this is just beyond bizarre. Oh, absolutely. And don't get me wrong, when you read the book, you'll see how persistent Kassab actually was, writing all those letters to the government, being all over on top of everything, super persistent as all hell. I'd imagine that McDonald was just like, stop. Yes. You know, if Jeff is truly innocent, this had to be so difficult. Speaking to Freddie and Mildred all the time, tearing the scabs off the wounds, 
reliving the heartache because you know that they're coming up and what else are they talking about? You know, he's living in an apartment by himself. His family is gone, dredging it up again over and over. I can really see it from Jeff's perspective here. I could see how it would wear you out, but the only way to make Freddy stop was to make up a crazy story. I mean, desperate times require desperate measures. Definitely zigged when he should have zagged, boy. And and it's tough when they walk yourself backwards out of. So, anywho, the CID agents who were investigating their their own co-workers' actions during the original investigation, so we have Peter Kearns and Jack Pruitt now, they actually turned their sights back onto McDonald on January 15, 1971. And some of the first notes from the investigation included time spent interviewing McDonald's neighbors the Kalins. And now the Kalins had a young, attractive daughter named Vicky, who babysat on occasion for Jeff and Colette. And the CID was interested in the possibility that there was something else going on between McDonald and Vicky, who frequently gave her driving lessons. Oh, good grief. I know. But, you know, Vicky was adamant that nothing had happened. And the notes then turned to another item, which were unsourced hairs, which we'll talk about a little bit more in our next episode. Vicky's younger sister, Pamela, actually dyed her hair blonde and recalled occasionally using a brush belonging to the McDonald's when she would also babysit for the family. So, again, a relevant detail as we move forward. And remember also, too, the McDonald's had said that the female intruder had blonde hair and that there were hairs that were found at the house that were unaccountable. So on February 7th, Agents Kearns and Pruitt consulted with a man named Dr. Brussels in New York City. He believed that McDonald was lying about the hippie intruders and that they should look for an ulterior motive, that he was covering up for what initially started as a family fight. He could not fathom that these hippies could commit these crimes, that they would have been too lethargic from being high on LSD. They just don't move by. Right. (laughs) Right. It was Errol Morris's impression that Brussels had not read about the La Bianca murders committed by the Manson family. Uh, just with the McDonald murders, items from the household were used as weapons of opportunity. Valuables were left, not stolen, left. Yet this is what the investigators took to be true because he was an expert. Not to mention the fact that he had never even examined McDonald. Dr. Brussels never examined him. So... I don't know how Dr. Brussels could have missed Helter Skelter. Was, the century, they, there's a lot of crimes of the century, but whole other episode. But this was pretty big, right? <laughs> yes. But another CID officer, Richard Mahan, was responsible for investigating Helena Stokely. Ding, ding, ding. However, just as she refused to attend the Article 32 hearing, she denied all requests to provide hair samples and fingerprints. What we do know is Stokely was an informant in 1969 for the local narcotic detective, Prince Everett Beasley, in which he helped make, I know what a name, in which he helped make a significant amount of drug busts. Needless to say, they were pretty close, you know, cop and informant, right? So Mahan tries to use their relationship to his advantage. Yeah, I would too. And you know, from the start, Stokely's involvement in the crime has always been a question mark. From Beasley, on March 1st, 1971, he wrote, She again told me she had no knowledge of this night after 12.30 a.m. and that she does not know for sure what happened. Another police officer she worked with, Jim Gaddis, this time in Tennessee, 
also utilized her as an informant. He recalls her asking him about the McDonald case and seeing if he could figure out if she was still wanted for questioning. He wouldn't be the first to catch her contradicting herself about the events of that night. In a pre-interview prior to a polygraph, it was determined that due to a, quote, mental block, she doesn't remember the events of that night, not even her whereabouts. However, she was convinced that she participated in the murders of Black McDonald and the children. So here we have a confession, not active participation, but that she was there. It was revealed that there is a possible motive, that she and others were angry with Captain McDonald because he would not treat them with methadone or drug addiction. And this is a statement that she's going to later retract and say that she thinks she heard of him prior to the murder. So, one, we're angry for a very specific reason, then next we think we heard of him. But then, you know, did McDonald refuse to treat addicts with methadone? Is this even a thing? Like, I don't know. We don't know. It was never addressed. And Helena also admitted to owning and frequently wearing a pair of white boots, a floppy hat, and a blonde wig during February 1970, the month of the murders, and following the crime, she got rid of all of them. So remember, Jeff said the woman he saw was wearing brown boots, and this has been misreported again and repeated again for 50 years. Finally, Helena tells investigators that she knew the identity of the murderers, and if she were granted immunity, she would divulge the information. It's a big words for a girl who's high on drugs. Mm-hmm. When push came to shove the day she was to take the polygraph test, her story became vague again. She said that she had been incorrect in her statements and that she only suspected some people of committing the homicide. However, the polygraph administered on April 24, 1971, concluded that Stokely was definitely convinced that she had been present the night of the murders, quote, in her mind. So, by thinking she was there, she said she was there, but it's only in her mind, so we can't really take a word for it that she was actually there, even though she said she was. Wait, do you follow? Uh, I don't. I can't even follow my line of thinking. Oh my god, this is so frustrating. <laughs> uh, I can look at your face and you're like, Tara, what the hell are you saying? But that's literally what was said. It, you're right. It, well, this, if people are confused, that's good, because so are we. So, you're not going to believe it. You are not going to believe it. The CID came back to look at that damn coffee table again after two years after the reinvestigation of the McDonald murders. Martin Lonke, a crime scene research analyst, wrote that if the, if the rocking chair had been parallel and up against the coffee table, then the coffee table would, quote, it could prevent it, maybe it prevented from falling over completely. I'm just going to take the coffee table and throw it through the window myself. All right. A person could have also prevented the table from falling face down. He also, (laughs) oh God, Lonky also raises the issue of the lack of evidence of any large-scale shuffle. Could Lonky have utilized the physical evidence to make the case against McDonald and find him guilty of the murders? Why not? Sure. Errol Morris thinks so. In speaking with Lonky, it seems that he was more concerned with McDonald being a closeted sociopath than the evidence that was available to him. That he is guilty, 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 and he had rigged the crime scene. Although not a psychiatric expert, he would tell Morris 
that a psychopath sees himself as completely normal and that he would not understand the natures of his crimes. He called it, quote, a monster with amnesia, and then postits that McDonald doesn't remember what he's done, so he can deny that he's done anything. Sure. I think we've read more books about psychopathy than this dude has. I, uh, yeah, I, I know I have. I have a murder shelf. <laughs> I do, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, following the investigation of Kearns and Pruitt, Morris takes us back to the Casals. So, at first, we have Freddie. He was McDonald's champion. He was literally doing everything in his power to prove his son-in-law's innocence. And as we explained earlier, there are a couple of turning points for the Casals. One, the phone call where McDonald had said he had taken care of the murders. Two, the Dick Cavett show appearance. And finally, when McDonald decided to move to California after taking a job as the director of emergency medicine at St. Mary's Hospital. Not bad. Not bad. Nice position. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It seems that Freddie may have actually been suffering from a little thing we call spite. So, in November 1971, he wrote an angry letter to McDonald for him not visiting when he had made a visit to Long Island. And the rift grew further as McDonald tried to put the past behind him. And by 1974, Casal began writing letters asking for an indictment against his son-in-law. What Morris points out is that the same claims in the indictment would appear in multiple investigations over the course of decades. There were no intruders. No one else was around to commit the murders. How can you determine... What evidence was actually a part of the crime or result of the sloppy investigation immediately thereafter? Did You can't. That's why Thomas McNamara, the new U.S. attorney, was still not sure if they could get a conviction with the evidence they currently had available to them. However, a grand jury was brought together on August 12, 1974. So, Hammond Beale described the grand jury as a wit hunt. There was a new judge presiding over the matter, and his name was Franklin T. Dupree. Another young lawyer, Brian Murtaugh, was also added to the prosecution team. McDonald would go on to describe him as a little viper. Ooh, didn't like him much. Oh, oh yeah. So when McDonald was sworn in, the line of questioning quickly turned to his relationship with his father-in-law. And McDonald advised his team, even his mother had come to feel ill at ease around Freddy Kassab. He had taken over the Article 32 hearing, garnering a lot of publicity, and he'd really become a media freak. At the time, McDonald also took the opportunity to make clear the conversation he had with Kassab that he had implied that he'd killed a man. After playing this game with Freddy, Jeff finally came clean. But by that time, McDonald had moved away to California, had tried to rebuild his life, and Freddie and Mildred, Glenn's mother, were not too pleased with him. Just that spite. Yeah. And guess who never appeared before the grand jury? You guessed it, Helena Stokely. She was never even called. The prosecution didn't even consider her a suspect anymore. However, William Posey, remember the laundry delivery guy who was her neighbor, well, Posey's testimony at the Article 32 hearing came into question, and the prosecution concluded that Posey had not been truthful during a polygraph simply because he hadn't been certain of the actual date that he had seen Stokely and couldn't recall the make of his car. Huh? Her car. Yeah. <laughs> it 
It was also asked if Stokely had been given a polygraph, and she had. However, given her state of mind, again, all the drugs, no one can be sure if she actually knew who had committed the murders or if she was actually even present. Regardless, the polygraphs were admitted into evidence, but the conclusions that were made regarding those tests were left out. It was made to seem really cut and dry and that no conclusion regarding Stokely could be reached, which is why she was never called. That actually does kind of make sense. Yeah. Fun fact. There was a French detective and scientist named Dr. Edmund Locard, who is most famous for his transfer theory or the exchange principle. Okay, essentially, the principle boils down to a simple fact. It is impossible for someone to enter a room without leaving something behind. A hair, exfoliated skin. If there's a type of struggle or an attack, fingernails, maybe blood. Disgusting to think about how much skin shedding that we do all over the place, right? Yeah, dust. Right. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Each member of the McDonald household had a different blood type. And this was a lucky occurrence in this case. And the chief of the chemistry lab for the FBI, Paul Strombaugh, believed that the blood left at the crime scene could be linked to each family member. Therefore, the crime scene could sort of be reconstructed. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Stromba gives a lot of detail about his theory to the grand jury, but there is no way to say exactly what happened, no matter how plausible he might sound. So to put it simply, as Morris wrote, the ABO blood typing does not connect a bloodstain with a specific individual. Now, there are maps in the book where Morris identifies where all of the blood stains were and what blood type was found where. There's a couple pieces of evidence that stand out. One was a speck of O-type blood found on McDonald's glasses. Now, this could easily have come from a patient at the emergency room where he was working that day. Yeah. Right. The FBI knew about it, but it was never brought up to the grand jury. Therefore, the jurors became convinced that the blood had come from one of his daughters, Kristen, because her type was O. The second were some bloody footprints coming out of Kristen's room that were in Colette's blood. Stromroff said that McDonald had created them when he stepped in her blood, trying to drag her body from one room to another. There was literally zero evidence to back this up. The footprints themselves were actually destroyed when someone had tried sawing them out of the floor. Um, It's too easy. I'm just going to move on. Yet, it was accepted as fact that he's dragging her body out and leaving bloody footprints. They could have been McDonald's. They could have been someone else's bare feet. I mean, who knows at this point? Sloppy police work. Though they did have police witnesses that these footprints had existed. Just like all those sets of photographs and people saying, oh, it was like this, but then it was like this. But someone moved something somewhere, but we don't know when. over the table and right at the flower pot. Yeah. Okay, anywho, the collection of fingerprints were even more bungled than the footprints. So certain areas (laughs) were not... Oh my God. So certain areas were not completely dusted for fingerprints, and some fingerprints that were found were those of MPs and other investigators at the crime scene. This should be crime scene 101. Wear gloves. Don't let 20 people into the crime scene. But here we are. How long 
has law enforcement been collecting fingerprints? Little history lesson. I learned this from Jill. And so we have, with a growing scientific study of fingerprints and scholarly articles on usefulness, 1892 is the answer. So, for example, Argentine police chief officer Juan Vustich used fingerprints to solve the murder of the sons of Francisca Roja, who had accused a neighbor of committing the crime. And a bloody thumbprint was found that matched Roja, not the neighbor. So Francisca confessed when confronted with the evidence. And in the early 20th century, French scientist Paul-Jean Coulier developed a method of using iodine fumes to transfer latent fingerprints. And by 1901, Scotland Yard began fingerprinting and identifying criminals using them. So American police departments adopted this same method not long afterward, and fingerprint identification became a standard practice in the U.S., but not at 544 Castle Drive in Fort Bragg. Nope, 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 nope. So 1892, we've been doing this, even though we've got, what, 40 or 50 years since 1970, but still, we got a long, long time. Yep, yep. This has come a long way. Don't get us wrong. We went over this in Tillage of the Fall Moon, but still, standard. So for four years, the government worked ceaselessly to reconstruct the crimes committed in the McDonald household. And on January 24, 1975, grand jury indicted Jeffrey McDonald on three counts of murder. And he was literally arrested within the hour in California. And because the Article 32 hearing hadn't been a trial, double jeopardy couldn't apply. So he was going to go up against the government yet again. All right, here we go again. So roughly three months before the start of the trial, Dr. John Thornton, hired by Bernie Segal, was finally able to examine the physical evidence the government had available to them. This was after years of requests to do so, and just like everyone else, Morris had a conversation with Thornton, who truly believes that McDonald did not get a fair trial. The defense went into it without being properly able to examine all of the evidence. To quote Thornton, he calls it a colossal clusterfuck. Yeah, that works for me. Now, the, the real question became, was evidence being withheld as it had been during the Article 32 hearing? Well, maybe. There was a memo called the Puritz Memo, and it was prepared by Brian Murkaw's law clerk, Jeffrey Puritz, at his request. The memo lists out what evidence could be legally withheld, and it was written prior to the 1979 trial. The line had been drawn. By letting Thornton review materials when he did, the prosecution, despite having ignored every single previous request for access to the evidence, had given McDonald's defense team just enough access and just enough time to review it all. That way, the defense couldn't argue that they hadn't been given anything. But why? Why is right. Right, the question begs to be asked. Why would the prosecution do this? If their case is sound, just let the defense see the evidence, right? Why is there a Puritz memo in the first place? Why is there an effort to withhold evidence legally? Who does that? What's the purpose? This just absolutely stinks to high heaven. That's really smelly. Yeah. Real smelly. <laughs> the trial began on July 19, 1979, just shy of nine years after the beginning of the Article 32 hearing. 
Donald had already established himself as a successful man in Long Beach, California. Again, he was the director of emergency medical services at St. Mary's Medical Center. And that's probably all going to go down the drain from here. So what was going to be different at the trial? Well, we have James Blackburn, who's an assistant U.S. attorney who's going to work alongside Brian Murtaugh, and they're going to begin opening arguments. And now they're going to argue that there's plenty of circumstantial evidence. We have the ice pick, the two knives, the wooden club, McDonald's pajama top, and the Esquire magazine. And this is all going to point directly at Jeffrey McDonald. He was there. It could only be him. And now the defense team was wholly opposite. We have Siegel, in addition to Wade Smith, who was a North Carolina defense attorney, is actually held in really high regard. But they told the jury that they were going to focus on McDonald himself, who he was as a man, and that the circumstantial evidence that the prosecution was going to line their case up with could not directly point to him as being the only one in the house and that he was a family man, and that he would never, ever be capable of doing this to his family. Enter Joe McGinnis, and we talked a bit about him briefly, but he's a young journalist on the rise who had just recently published a best-selling book called The Selling of the President, 1968. And he's going to be the future author of Fatal Vision. And that's the book that's going to ultimately cast McDonald in a negative light forever. But McDonald had hired him, along with approval from Siegel, to become part of the defense team and write Jeff's story. And it was McDonald's hope that the book would raise funds for his defense team. So again, we're going to have much, much, much more on McGinnis later. Okay. So August 1st, 1979, Mildred Kassab, Colette's mother, is called to the stand. And James Blackburn asks her to speak of her daughter's last Christmas. And Mildred testifies that her daughter wasn't herself. You know, maybe it was because she was pregnant, or maybe it was due to the financial troubles that the McDonald family was experiencing. You know, apparently the family wasn't getting along, according to Mildred. There was a fight during the subpar dried-out meal, and McDonald made a big sting about Colette's attitude and her sullenness. And when Mildred asked her daughter what was wrong, they just didn't seem to be getting along. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Flashback nine years before to the Article 32 hearing. Freddie Kassab was lauding McDonald for him always being a good boyfriend, a good father, a good husband, good son-in-law, good, 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 good. Jeff and Colette met when they were 12 years old. You know, Freddie knew this, and he describes an alternative reality at the hearing, the exact opposite of what Mildred is now saying. Freddie says that the family was the happiest he had ever seen them. Donald bought him a pony for crying out loud. He did. He bought him a pony. I never got a pony. I didn't either. Financial troubles? What? I don't know. Unfortunately, we see plenty of supporters turn against McDonald throughout the decades, so they're not the first ones to flip. So, one acquaintance of the Kassab and the McDonald's testified that Mildred may have been upset that Jeff left after the Article 32 hearing, and that's why her story changed. Spite. Spite. That that spite knife. Yes. She said, uh, quote, Jeff, you can't go. I need you. Blah, blah, blah. And then... If you leave, I'll make you live to regret it. Was the change of story just out of spite? 
you know, this acquaintance was Helen Fell, and she continued further with Errol Morris off the stand at a later time. It appears that Mildred had more to say on the subject. Uh, quote, I will never stop until you go to the gallows. End quote. Wow. That's a bitter mother-in-law. That is bitter. She lost her daughter and grandchildren. Say that to your son-in-law, jeez. So, now we come to the topic of Jeffrey McDonald's torn pajama top. And this just makes me tired. <laughs> Remember, it was found covering Blood's body, torn, blood-soaked, full of holes. And McDonald's had gone into detail back in 1970 about how he was knocked out, that when he came to, he found blood on the floor, a knife sticking out of her chest. And he had removed the knife and covered her with his pajama top. So let's make that clear. He was wearing a pajama top at the time of her death, according to him. Okay. So the version we get from Fatal Vision is a little bit more complicated. And Paul Stombaugh, our FBI forensic expert, believed that he could prove that Colette had been stabbed through the pajama top, that McDonald had placed it over her and stabbed her through it. Why would he do that? Doesn't make any sense. But let, let us follow this. So the dialogue that we get from the TV series is that, quote, she had 21 ice pick wings. We discovered that if you fold the actual pajama top the way it was found on top of the body, the clean cut holes match the pattern of 21 ice pick static, end quote. How can we be sure of that when Morris points out that there are different sets of photographs taken at the crime scene? that the pajama top is in two different positions folded in various ways. Where the pajama top was actually found is even disputed. It gets worse. Colette was wearing a pink pajama top. Stonebaugh and Shirley Green, who was another forensic technician, they never tried to match up the holes in both shirts. I'm sorry, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> Green also said that the varying size of the holes wasn't even considered either. So needless to say... The government couldn't prove how the stabbing occurred. All right, so since the prosecution couldn't prove that Jeff had stabbed Colette in the master bedroom, they were now going to go after McDonald's story, all right, his version of events. Strombaugh was now going to advise how the shape of the puncture wounds could tell us if they were made in the master bedroom or in the living room. Okay, a simple series of equations here. Circular holes stationary fabric, no tearing, done in the master bedroom. Tearing, moving fabric, someone was in motion, those were done in the living room where the action happened. But guess what? John Thornton, the defense forensic expert, disagreed. He utilized a moving target, a ham attached to a moving sled in his experiment, and found that even when stabbing a moving target with an ice pick, holes were produced without tearing. He repeated this 50 times. 50 perfectly good hands down the drain. The, yeah, the holes were circular each time, no tearing, and the prosecution couldn't disprove McDonald's story of the events that took place. But at least the defense could poke holes. <laughs> in the prosecution's theory. Is this even science? I, I mean, know. do we know? I don't think we know. I think the ham stabbing, the attack on the hands is more plausible than 
trying to figure out what holes line up with the pajama top that are not even matching it up with the other pajama top that you're saying that he stabbed her through two layers of fabric. So I don't know. It's all, it's all crack science. With conflicting crime scene photos as to what the pajama top looked like on top of Colette. I'm going to go with Thornton here, though, and say that the ham theory. We're going with the ham? We're going with the ham. Three eggs and oh. ham? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, August 10th, 1979, we're at the midpoint of the trial. And here's where we move into a really long chapter on the March 1970 issue of the Esquire magazine, which is Exhibit 139. And remember... This came up for hours in the Article 32 hearing. The cover story was called California Evil and highlighted the Manson family, Satanism, all sorts of things. What can only be described as an odd exercise, Jack Crawley, one of the assistant U.S. attorneys, I, I can't keep track of all of them at this point. I don't they're, they're just names at this point. I, I have no idea. Exactly. He, he started reading from the magazine verbatim, with plenty of objections from the defense. But Dupree allows it to go on. 20 pages, 20 pages of trial transcript later. Finally, an objection to relevance from Wade Smith, which is actually his second. However, the prosecution is still allowed to continue. So Martel and Blackburn, they are looking for specific words that would match up to McDonald's story. Groovy, hippies, blonde, as if he'd stolen his description of the intruders directly from the magazine. They're literally just looking for any evidence to make their story fit. And Siegel actually moves to strike the whole thing from the transcript. And here's what Judge Dupree says. I was wondering, why wasn't somebody cutting this short or making an objection? You say now that one was made, and I do not recall it. But unfortunately, the jury was left with an impression of a stage crime. Thank you, Judge Debris. Ooh, continuing through August 13th, the topic of psychiatric testimony came to the forefront for Judge Dupree. Now, we have nothing but positive evaluations from multiple psychiatrists from the Article 32 hearing and the grand jury in 1974 and 75 who stated that there was zero evidence of psychopathology in Jeffrey McDonald. None. However, Judge Dupree declared that if the defense wanted to have psychiatrists testify to this fact yet again, McDonald was going to have to submit to another evaluation by another expert of the prosecution's choosing. In comes Dr. James Brussel. Remember him? The one who said McDonald's lying about all the hippies? Look for an ulterior motive? And Hirsch Lazar Silverman both having some notoriety for working together on the Boston Strangler case. So they took their ability to know whether someone was lying or telling the truth very seriously. Like Milkovich Kassab at the trial, the report submitted by Brussels and Silverman was a complete 180 from any other psychiatrist that had ever examined McDonald. To quote the report, Dr. McDonald may well be viewed as a psychopath subject to violence under pressure rather effeminate as an individual, and given to overt behavior when faced with emotional stress. As a serious emotional man, he is given evidence of secretiveness with questionable moral standards. Dr. McDonald, in personal and social adjustment, is need of a continuous, consistent psychotherapeutic intervention 
coupled with psychiatric attention, end quote. So basically, we think you're a psycho and murdered your entire family. You're nuts. That's what I got. Yeah. McDonald was utterly appalled. He, he immediately went to his lawyers, indicating that the doctors had not asked him about his family, his feelings towards them, his relationship with his wife and children, or anyone for that matter. Not even the feelings he felt about the loss of his family. To McDonald, it appeared that Dr. Brussels was himself was out of sorts and that he didn't even know where he was. Brussels even asked McDonald if he had his coat and hat. Now, Morris asked a very important question. Did Dr. Brussels ever find his hat? But unfortunately, the hat is lost to, uh, to time. We, we just don't know. It was a very confusing paragraph if you guys read the book. It literally was like, do you know where I'm staying? Where are you staying? Did you see where I put my hat and my coat down? I think he's getting a little old at this point. Mm-hmm. And Sorry. remember, for the, for the Article 32 hearing, this guy gave his opinion but never even examined Jeff. So this was the first time he literally examined McDonald, too. Yeah. So it was after this meeting with Dr. Brussel that Bernard Siegel made a decision, which ended up being pretty much a lose-lose proposition. And it was that the prosecution's report was not made available to the jury, so this psychiatric report, and so would the other previous testimony. Every other sparkling review of his character and his non-psychopathy, the jury, they're not going to hear the end thing. So on August 22nd, Dupree ruled just that. No psychiatric testimony would be heard. And this was a major pillar of the defense, one that stated over and over and over again that McDonald was not the type of man to commit these heinous crimes. So it's just wrong. And this was really a failure on Siegel to protect his client. Now, Morris is going to take us a, a slight step back in time to July 31st. So here we are, kind of like the end of August, but we're just kind of jumping back uh, about a month or so. We're just 12 days into the trial, and this is where the name Helena Stowe comes up in the court transcripts during a bench conference out of hearing from the jury. Dupree, despite the fact that he appears to be in favor of the prosecution already, he inquired about her whereabouts. No one can find her. And by August 13th, again, coming back to present time in the trial, she's still not found. Her parents are subpoenaed in hopes of finding her when Murtaugh drops this big bomb. He's been talking to her. He tells the court that it doesn't really matter. She can't testify to anything, so why should she be called? She thinks she's involved, and that's it. Again, pause, repeat. Press play. She thinks she's involved. Utterly ridiculous. But, I mean, I understand that she's probably not going to be good on the stand, but if you think you might have someone who is involved in the crime, you think you'd want to investigate that a little bit further. Well, this is reasonable doubt, right? Yeah. You do want to, as a defense attorney, like possibly point the finger at a likely suspect? Huh? Just saying. All right, so Stokely is finally located at the Pickens County Jail in Greenville, North Carolina. And August 17th, 1979, she, oh my God, Helena is called as a witness. Note, she is not represented by an attorney. So let us tell you, she does not paint a pretty picture of herself at all. She has a cast on her left arm 
broken during an argument over drugs. She spoke quietly about her daily use of heroin and LSD, her fascination with witchcraft back in 1970, certainly endearing her to everyone on the jury and the court. She recalls many of the details we've heard over and over. She had a blonde wig, but she burned it. Like Lizzie? Oh, I digress, sorry. But why would she burn it? It was connected with the murder. Descriptive testimony from someone who supposedly doesn't remember a thing. And she even remembers getting rid of the floppy hat. But yet, when pushed by the defense, she claims that she couldn't remember simple things from the day before. So can Helena's testimony be trusted? Would I trust it as a juror? No. You know, she is there. She's not there. She remembers. She doesn't. She's had a dream. She can see herself there. Maybe she was. Maybe she wasn't. She's doing LSD. Could I get beyond reasonable doubt with her? I don't think so. But would you trust her testimony if she had been called? And then should she have been called? Considering what I know about the case, so maybe that's the difference. Some of the shit she absolutely should have been brought forward or at least listened to. Just because she's nuts doesn't mean she wasn't involved in the murder. Oh, absolutely. And you know, we actually have six witnesses who can actually testify to her confessing, basically. Yep. So Judge Dupree advised that the testimony would be given, but without the jury present. We see this a lot. Once complete, he would then decide if it would be brought back to them. So that is because hearsay is not allowed unless corroborating evidence clearly establishes the trustworthiness of the statements. So are Helena's statements trustworthy? Let's find out. So we have Jane Zilliu, who testified on August 17, 1979. She said Helena had told her she could never go home because she was involved in some murders involving a woman and two small children, and that she had gotten rid of some clothing that potentially linked her to the crime. Later, when Morris spoke with Jane, she recalled that Dupree would overrule anything from the defense, and that a definite bias existed. There was also another guy named Charles Red Underhill, who was a Nashville music promoter who knew Stokely. And he recalled that she had confessed to him during the midst of a new panic attack, sobbing, saying, they killed her and the two children. That's not really a confession, just that statement alone, but she described Kimberly and Kristen's room in great detail. And later, when Brad said that he had seen pictures of that room, he looked at Stokely and said, that night, sitting on the side of your bed, you describe everything that's in these photographs to me. You need to go front of Judge Dupree and say, yes, I was there. Yes, I took part. And her retort was, no, I'll never step forward. Why should I go to prison and all I got to do is make off that I'm a drug addict and they won't take my word for nothing? <laughs> the kicker, the pictures that the both of them were shown by the defense team were never published. Both of them wouldn't have seen them otherwise unless one of them had actually been. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, James Gaddis was an undercover police officer in Nashville, and he was to testify to the judge next. Detective Gaddis said that Stokely had told him that she was at the crime scene and that she felt she had been there. 
Then Robert Brisentine, a CID polygraph expert who had seen her back in April of 71, he stated that it was like flipping a switch on and off. One minute she didn't have anything to do with it, the next minute she believed she was there. Brisentine later told Morris he felt her brain was so drug-addled that she could have been easily suggestible. But that's why he was always wishy-washy about whether or not she was there or wasn't there. He was already convinced that McDonald was guilty. Then there was Prince Beasley, a now-retired Fayetteville police officer. Remember, he had utilized Stokely as the drug informant, right? So Beasley went looking for her the morning after the murders because she fit the description of the female assailant that McDonald had described. She told Beasley, quote, In my mind, it seems that I saw this happen, but I was heavily on mescaline, end quote. She couldn't commit. Same story, different witnesses. Finally, William Posey, the laundry guy, and her neighbor, who testified at the Article 32 hearing, Posey had heard a different story from Stokely, that she had tried to ride a hobby horse in the girl's bedroom and that it had been broken, which we'll get to soon. It was broken. Now, how would she have known if she hadn't been there? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Now, remember... The jury hasn't heard this testimony yet, and Dupree takes the weekend to decide. So while he's deliberating over the evidence, a law clerk for Bernard Siegel named Wendy Router receives a call from the motel that Stokely was staying at. And Stokely had managed to get into a fight with her boyfriend, Bernie Davis, and the motel was looking for someone to get them the hell out of there. And so when she arrives in efforts to calm Helena down after the, the whole episode, she speaks with her for some time, and Wendy's first impression is that she really isn't a drugged-out husk, as everybody seems to believe. She came from a middle-class family, she had a father in the military who was pretty high up, and she told Wendy that she had the memory of holding a candle. She couldn't say that on the stand. And Wendy couldn't remember like the exact phrase Helena used, but it was one lines of prosecution will hate me slash fry me slash burn me. So take your pick, but that's pretty much echoing the sentiment she had made to Red Underhill when explaining why she wouldn't come forward. So Rodder told Morris that Judge Debris had called her at the hotel, which is, is weird, right? How did she know she was there? How did he know what was going on? And Morris, in speaking with her later on for the book, asks her, do you believe that she was hidden by the prosecution? And Wendy's answer may or may not shock you at this point, but she says, quote, yes. Don't forget, it was a shock when the government found her. Siegel had been asking them for years, how can I find her? How can I locate her? I want to interview her. And the answer was, we don't know. Then within hours, they bring her in. How was she found in hours? I believe they knew where she was all along. I think she's absolutely right. God, this is such a mess. Thank you. All right, that Monday, despite what Soakley had said to Wendy Router, Judge Dupree ruled that the evidence from the six witnesses who had heard confessions directly from Helena Soakley herself would be inadmissible because they were about as unclearly untrustworthy or clearly untrustworthy, let me say, as any statement I have ever seen or heard. I don't even know what you just said there. <laughs> He's not admitting the statements, okay? However, the defense team could call witnesses. They just couldn't be asked directly about the confessions that they heard. 
So you can imagine how this part of the trial went. Objection, sustained. Objection, sustained. There is literally a page in the book where these are like the only words you see on the page. You know, the court won this round. The defense couldn't put a cohesive story that the jury could follow that would corroborate the fact that the six witnesses had heard Elena Soakley confessed to being at the scene of the crime or taking part in it. However, Wendy Roeder was able to take the stand, and she was able at least to get out that Elena Stokey had confessed, and she was still continuing to do so. Hearsay. The judge decided it was unreliable, and hearsay. Look, if you believe McDonald, you want to hear Helena. If you think he's guilty, you believe she's a drugged-out husk and totally unreliable. Helena seems intelligent enough to know, however, that it is in her best interest not to remember anything on the official record. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Warren sidetracks here a little bit and talks about Siegel, and it was May 2011 when he actually spoke to him for the first time. And it would seem, as you can kind of pick up throughout all of this testimony, that Siegel and Dupree literally hated each other from the start. And by the trial in 1979, there was literally open hostility in the court. Oh, that and makes for a wonderful situation and absolute fairness. Yeah, there's a lot of fairness going on in this trial. Let's get that straight. Yeah. Uh, Siegel described the case as having four legs. One, the psychiatric testimony. Two, Stokely's confession. Three, the ruling on the Article 32 here. And finally, four, the forensic evidence. They wanted to show how manufactured it all really was. But here we have Judge Dupree, who systematically cut off each leg of that table that Siegel had built. It was all doctrine. Blackburn and Martaw, the prosecution team, they were very concise in their closing statements. The proof was still in the physical evidence for them. McDonald's pajama shirt fibers were found where McDonald's statement indicates they should not be, and not where the struggle took place in the living room, for example, where they should be. It's actually quite moving. You can read to find out. However, Siegel opened with a statement that Prosecutor Blackburn had said in his opening arguments. Physical evidence doesn't lie. They said it in the beginning. They said it now. Physical evidence doesn't say a darn thing because MPs trampled the scene, contaminated it, period. Unfortunately, Seagal would continue for almost two and a half hours. And it would seem that he misjudged his audience when he spoke of the dangers of government to a jury of white tobacco farmers and ex-military men. You think he might have screwed up there a little bit? Morris calls it a desultory mess. Wade Smith was left without any time to address the jury. However, Blackburn and Murtaugh were gracious enough to give him some of their time. Oh, Well, not that it would do any good, but on August 29th, the case was handed over to the jury, and it only took them six hours to find Jeffrey McDonald guilty of two counts of second-degree murder for Colette and Kimberly, and one count of first-degree murder for Kristen. He was also sentenced the same day. Dupree gave him three consecutive life sentences. But that's not the end to the Jeffrey McDonald story. Far from it. We are only getting started. And that concludes part one of our series on A Wilderness of the Error by Errol Morris. So join us next time for part two, where we dive deep into the McDonald appeal process, the impact of the book Fatal Vision, 
It's like there's a continuum here, a wilderness of error at one end and fatal vision by Joe McGinnis at the other. And more evidence that was withheld from the defense. <laughs> there, we, there is more. And judges with bad attitudes, pesky blood spatter, wings, dolls, hairs, the role of DNA, and what justice might look like 50 years later. Errol Morris makes it very, very clear that McDonald's conviction isn't quite as a slam dunk as we had once thought. Well, get started on our next book, Murder Bookies, Lost Girls, An Unsolved American Mystery by Robert Kolker. This book is a compelling read, a journey into the lives of the victims of the unidentified Long Island serial killer, a.k.a. Lisk. We don't know what we don't know, but Kolker takes an investigative deep dive in what we do know. The escort business, sex work on the internet, the stigma of prostitution, and how little the public cares when they go missing. Despite their secrets, you'll feel you know each girl or someone like her, and your heart will break for each one and the lives shattered because of their loss. So thank you, as always, for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or shoot us an email at jillandtara, J-I-L-L-A-N-D-C-A-R-A, at membershelfbookclub.com. I definitely love to hear from you. And follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Podbean, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts can be heard. We're everywhere, I think. <laughs> we are. So just let our, let our episodes pop up in there so you don't have to go searching. And if you can, leave us a five-star review. It really does make a difference, and we certainly appreciate your feedback. So until next time, Mother Bookies, happy reading. Enjoy. Lots to look forward to. Written and produced by Tara and Jill, all rats reserved. It's always my favorite ending now. <laughs>